This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful for your word, for your revelation to us, for the insight it gives us into who you are and into who we are, and for the wisdom that you have revealed to us in your word. Father, we pray that we might take heed to your word, as the writer of Proverbs says, that we might listen, that we might buy the truth and sell it not, that we might recognize that the highest priority in our life needs to be the study of your word and assimilating it into our lives. And we pray now as we reflect upon your word that you would, through God the Holy Spirit, impress this upon our our minds and drive it deep into our souls that it might uh, change us, challenge us, and con- you be used by you to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We are in Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. And I have titled the message this morning, Sexual Licentiousness, the Path of Destruction. The writer of Proverbs is a father talking to his son. And in these next two or three chapters, we have a man-to-man focus, an insight on their conversation, the advice of the father to the son in guiding him through the uh, treacherous uh, steps of dealing with sexual temptation and the problems and the catastrophes that occur as a result of yielding to that temptation. As we see and have seen in the previous chapters, there are ten basic lessons here from the father to the son in the first nine chapters. Starting in chapter 10, we see individual proverbs, just a collection of wise sayings that the father is teaching to the son. But in the first nine chapters, there's sort of an integrated, consistent pattern that takes place there. And we have gone through the first seven. And in the eighth lesson, we see the emphasis on the emptiness of free sex, the em- emptiness of a sexual, uh, sexually promiscuous lifestyle, and at the end, a challenge to the wisdom of marriage and the importance of uh, intimacy within marriage and keeping that within the marriage bounds. In the ninth lesson, which begins halfway through the sixth chapter, there is a, another discourse on the problems of sexual promiscuity and the, the uh, dangers of the adulterous woman. And then, chap, uh, then the tenth lesson again returns to a focus on the 
adulteresses' seductive tactics. And so we see this is uh, an important emphasis in Scripture. This is one of the greatest areas of failure, especially in a culture that is, uh, has become uh, seduced by moral relativism, where the divorce rate is going down only because the marriage rate is going down, because people choose to just live together uh, for whatever period of time until they go on to somebody else, and where sexual promiscuity has become the norm for children even as young as uh, 9 or 10 years of age. We have a horrible problem in our culture of children having babies. We have another horrible uh, uh, problem, an epidemic that is destructive in our culture of pornography with the Internet and computers and what goes on uh, in many of the um, uh, television entertainment packages that are put into uh, many uh, hotels and motels to appeal to the, uh, the the sexual desire of many travelers. It has created an enormous problem uh, within uh, within marriage and within the family and ultimately within the nation. For once, people began to succumb to uh, sexual temptation. Once they opened that door and they began to justify and to uh, to justify and to uh, moralize their sexual infidelity, which is what we see in the whole the whole issue with uh, homosexual marriage it 's just one minority group in in the country, probably not more than three or four percent of of uh, people in this country, according to study after study over the last ten or twenty years. Are, are are homosexual, but yet their um, you know their lobby groups and their their uh, legislative tactics and everything else make it seem as if this is much more. They have captured certain segments of the media, so it is promoted again and again through television shows, through movies, as if this is normal. And with the development, especially by NBC, but also by uh, other networks of sitcoms and other other uh, shows that uh, try to portray homosexual marriage as a and, and relationships as something normative or uh, of people living together uh, sexual immorality as being just just normal and therefore okay it has led to a degradation of moral values uh, across the board in in among young people that that have no idea uh, the horrible danger they're putting their souls in through sexual infidelity. Any kind of sin impacts the, 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 the very core of the health of our soul, not just sexual immorality, but that is one of the most pervasive areas, especially in a licentious culture. And it is one of the most destructive. All are destructive. I'm not singling this out as some sort of area of sin that's worse than any other. It is in some ways because of the, the weakness that we all have in the area, in areas of, of uh, sexual temptation. And so the, it's no surprise that the writer of Proverbs, as a concerned father, would address 
his son in this particular area and give a lot of attention to it. Now, one of the things that I'm doing with this particular lesson, as, and we'll see this a little bit more as we come through the next few chapters and finish this introduction, is that with the level of uh, repetition that we find in the text, I'm starting to move away from simply a verse-by-verse exposition to shifting into more topical exposition because once we get into and truly into chapter 10, we need to look at the various topics that are addressed and look at uh, the variety of uh, Proverbs from chapter 10 through chapter 31 that address different topics. We'll look at money. We'll look at the work ethic. We'll look at uh, many different areas that are emphasized in the remaining in the remaining chapters rather than a true verse by verse. So with the level of repetition that we have and on this topic of adultery in these next in chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven, then what I'm focusing on here is just summarizing uh, this material in uh, one lesson. In Proverbs five, one and two, we see the introduction. It is addressed to the son. And the father says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. Now, this introduction is not something that is different from what we've heard many times before as these lessons are introduced. The challenge to listen to what the father is teaching not because it is the Father's opinion, but because the Father represents the revelation of God on these particular areas, and he is the uh, conduit for communicating uh, the revelation of God to his Son so that his Son can live a wise life. Uh, the Son is probably, in this instance, is probably beyond the years of puberty and is susceptible to the temptations of sexual promiscuity. Uh, we know from a later writing, the Mishnah, that was not written down until the second century or so A.D., but it reflects a long oral tradition among the uh, Jewish people. And in uh, the Mishnah in Perkei Avot 521, we read one of the rabbis stating, uh, at five, at the age of five, a child should be start being introduced to Scripture. At 10, to the Mishnah. At 13, to religious duties. At 15, to Talmud. Uh, at 18, to the wedding canopy. So they saw uh, marriage taking place at approximately the age of 18. This would be, uh, gives us some insight back into the time period uh, in the Old Testament about when uh, they would come to uh, come to uh, uh, sexual maturity and enter into into marriage. It is interesting that in our culture we have lost sight of the fact that in the ancient world they understood that that when a well, we would refer to an adolescent that's a modern concept uh, that adolescents came to the uh, came to puberty was the time for them to get married so there would not be this long gap between the time they were. Uh, they they were uh, had had reached sexual maturity and the time they got married because as we all know that just leads to complicated problems. A study I read back in the 1980s on <clears throat> on American uh, young people over the past 150 years indicated that in the late 19th century, 
the average age for sexual uh, maturity or for reaching puberty was around 18 years of age. But the average time frame for reaching emotional maturity, recognizing uh, personal responsibility, was about 14 years of age. Because in many cases, children grew up having to take responsibilities on the farm or on the ranch or whatever the environment was. They had to start helping with the family from a young age, so they developed a sense of responsibility and uh, knowing right from wrong long before they faced the temptations of, uh, of sexual activity. By the 1980s, the average age of puberty had moved to about 12. I think it might even be er a year or so earlier now for some due to a lot of different factors. But the average age of emotional maturity uh, by the late 1980s was about 22 or 23. So you now have a 10-year span between uh, reaching sexual maturity and having the emotional maturity to handle uh, these kinds of problems. And this has led to numerous, numerous uh, breakdowns in society. And the problem that we see from the father's viewpoint here as he's addressing his son is he is, uh, this is as we believe it to be, Solomon the king, he understands that that yielding to sexual promiscuity is not just a personal problem, it is an assault on the second divine institution of marriage. It's an assault on the third divine institution, the stability of the family, and on the fourth divine institution, the stability of the nation. So it's not simply a personal issue. So he, he um, as he begins, he focuses the son's attention once again on listening to what he has to say. And when we think about the fact that this is Solomon, this is Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba. That it takes us back to recognize that there is a, a, a whole story, a whole narrative, both as a Jew and as a son of David, that lies behind this. There are two examples in the Old Testament related to adultery. The first comes from Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. We are familiar with that particular story and episode. This is after Joseph had been sold by his brothers uh, to the Midianite traders and then was taken as a slave to Egypt. In Egypt, he was bought by one of the highest officials in the land, a man by the name of Potiphar, who recognized Joseph's maturity and his wisdom and elevated it, him to a point where everything in, in uh, Potiphar's household was under Joseph's control to the point that that Potiphar really didn't even have to pay attention to what his de debts were, to what he, what was owed him, to even what he owned, that everything was, was in Joseph's hand and Joseph was uh, completely uh, trustworthy. But Potiphar had a wife with a wandering eye. She was a classic example of the adulterous woman mentioned in, in Proverbs. And so she had, had a, a lustful eye that was cast upon Joseph, and she continuously tried to entice him uh, to her bed. And Joseph would continuously turn her down because he did not want to breach the trust of his master. 
And then one day when they were alone, uh, she tried to grab him. He fled. Uh, she retained hold of his cloak, and she used that to cry rape that he had tried to seduce her and to blame him for which he was put into prison. But we see the example here of the man with integrity that refuses to yield to temptation. And on the other side, we have the episode of David and Bathsheba, and that is recorded in Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And here we, the, we see the example of a man who has integrity, who is righteous before God, and yet still, like all of us, has a sin nature and has a time of weakness where he has, as we study the context, he has already succumbed to a level of irresponsibility by not going out to battle with his troops. They have gone to fight the Syrians, and he hasn't gone to battle. He stayed back uh, in his palace in Jerusalem. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, you will see that the old city of David is actually, if you're looking at it from the east, it's on a slope. You have the Temple Mount, which was at the time of David, just the threshing floor of Urena the Jebusite. And then there is a long slope going down from the Temple Mount. And just below the temple is the site of where David's palace was. So David's palace is above all of the other residences in the uh, old city of David. Today they believe they have found, discovered the foundations archaeologically of David's palace. Now, if you're the king and he's king over uh, and the ruler over this city, if he just goes out on his rooftop, which is where one would go, where it was in the cool of the evening, uh, he can look down and he can see the rooftop of every uh, every house below him. And Second Samuel 11 says that as he went out in the evening, so it's dusk time, so this is not a time when Bathsheba is going up to take a bath in broad daylight. It is dusk, the sun is setting, it's growing dark, but yet David has enough, there's enough visibility for David to see Bathsheba. He is tempted, he sends for her, she comes to him, they have... They have an affair, and then afterwards uh, she conceives and is pregnant. And then David is um, uh, puts together a plan, a conspiracy, to have her husband killed so that it won't be discovered that she has uh, committed adultery with him and that he is the father of her child. So he is then condemned by God because he has been guilty of both murder, uh, murdering Uriah the Hittite, and and adultery, and yet God's grace is extended to David, even though there is a punishment, a fourfold punishment upon David, uh, even though there is a punishment upon him. Nevertheless, God forgives him, and God gives him the grace to survive the condemnation and the punishment. So no matter how we fail in life, no matter what our past failures may be in any of these areas, we know that God still loves us and he still extends his grace in our lives. So the writer <coughs> the, song, the, the uh, writer of the Proverbs says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom uh, lend me your ear. These are the same words we saw in the previous ver- uh, chapter in 420. Uh, just a challenge to pay attention, to listen to me. And the purpose is that you may preserve discretion. This is the word we've seen again and again, to keep, to guard, to protect. And discretion is the word uh, mzima, 
indicating purpose, discretion, wisdom, the application of wisdom and decision-making in one's life, that your lips may keep knowledge, preserving discretion, keeping knowledge, or the synonymous parallelism there, so that I, to challenge him to be uh, mature and wise in his, in his life and in his actions. As we go through these sections uh, in Proverbs, we see that there's four or five different elements uh, as we summarize all of it. The women are described in uh, specific detail in various terms. The men are then described as well. Uh, the enticements, uh, how the um, uh, uh, temptation takes place is described. Uh, the specific prohibitions are given, and then there's an outline of the consequences both to the individual as well as to the nation. And then this chapter, chapter 5, concludes with the corrective, and that is to maintain a strong marriage where you're faithful and loyal to your spouse. Proverbs 5.3, the writer begins with an explanation. He's answering the question, why should I listen to you, Dad? Why should I pay attention? And the father says, for or because the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. The imagery here of dripping honey is something that is sweet, something that is attractive, something that tantalizes us, something that we desire, and it, it, it promotes a temptation. And the parallel and the synonymous parallelism of the second line is her mouth is smoother than oil. But the woman is identified here as an immoral woman. And the word that is used in the Hebrew is the word czar, which indicates a stranger. It's a word that's used in literal historical narrative to describe a foreigner. But it's used metaphorically in wisdom literature, in poetry, to describe the woman, the adulteress, who is foreign to uh, this it, the, the man's life. She's not married to him. Thus, there is not a unification, a covenantal unification in marriage. So she's referred to as a stranger. The terms that we see here in the first, in verse three, um, and also through this chapter, indicated uh, by Proverbs two sixteen and Proverbs uh, seven five, where we have the term. Isha Zarah, that Zar, that's the term I just mentioned that's used in, uh, in, in 5.3. She's the strange woman or the immoral woman. And that's emphasized in many parallels where she's also referred to in some cases as a prostitute, in some cases as an adulteress, but that clarifies and, and specifies the meaning. And then she's also in the, in the parallelism referred to by the word nokri, meaning uh, again a foreigner or a stranger. Proverbs 2.16 says that the purpose for these uh, Proverbs is to deliver the son from the immoral woman, from the seductress. So we see that parallel. These are the two words, as I've tried to uh, emphasize, which is which by color coding on the screen. The immoral woman is the isha, that's the word for woman, the isha zarah, and the seductress is the term nokri. Uh, this gives us a, an insight into how uh, this had been, uh, this was viewed, uh, within the proverbial literature that it is wrong to go outside of marriage to seek sexual satisfaction. 
Another term that is used, another pair of terms, is Isha Ra. Isha meaning woman, Ra meaning evil. She is viewed as an, the adulteress is viewed as an evil woman. And also the term Zana for uh, fornication or adulterer or prostitute. And this word too is used in uh, various different passages. These words are used to express uh, primarily illicit heterosexual uh, intercourse, and it's, they're mostly used to refer to women, but on occasion, in Exodus 34.16 and Numbers 25.1, they are applied uh, to applied to men. So the focal here, focal point here is on the son being attracted to the adulterous woman, but the principles would apply in the other direction as well, that is, a woman being seduced uh, by a man. The uh, penalty for adultery under the Mosaic law stated in Leviticus 20, verse 10, that the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. The reason this was a capital offense was because it threatened uh, the sanctity of marriage and the home, which is the core stabilizing influence in a nation. It is the home, the family, that's the training ground for the next generation. And when that breaks down, as we see in our own culture, it has uh, incredible uh, unintended consequences in the destruction of a society. Uh, the way our society has broken down in terms of marriage and family with the number of of children who are raised in single-family homes, the number of children who are raised and just just passed around is uh, is, is so horrible that that uh, unless something radical changes in the in the next couple of decades, this in and of itself will lead to the internal collapse and destruction of this country simply because the values do, that this country was founded upon will no longer be passed on to the next generation, as they have not to the current generation of young people. Uh, they are completely divorced from the historical values that made this country great. And once that is lost, the complete collapse and, and destruction of a culture uh, is unavoidable. Now, the women are described, the adulterous woman is described by a variety of different terms. In Proverbs 9.13, we read that a foolish woman is clamorous She's simple and knows nothing. She's ignorant of truth. The word for foolish woman is the Hebrew word, word kasulut, which means stupid or foolish. That is someone who has rejected divine viewpoints, someone who has rejected uh, the teaching of God's word so that the adulterous woman is viewed. Notice God, God is not politically correct in the way he describes us. He, he doesn't say, well, she just hasn't learned enough. You know, it was her parents' fault. They just didn't really teach her. No, be, rejection of the truth means you're stupid and a fool. And that's God's opinion. That's not my opinion. Um, and so she, she is described in this way as, as well as one who sets a trap. Uh, this is seen at the, uh, the last verse. She's calling upon the young men and saying, whoever's simple, 
let him turn and come in. So the young man, the man who is susceptible to adultery, is viewed as one who is simple. One, as we've seen the study of that word in the past, this is someone who's open to just any any influence, any moral idea, has no convictions of his own whatsoever, and can be turned in any direction and uh, influenced by, by anyone. He has no sense of, that, of right and wrong. The adulteress is viewed as a and described as a sexual predator in Proverbs 22, uh, 14, uh, 23, 27, and 23, 28. Uh, she's described as uh, that her mouth is a deep pit, and those who are poured by the Lord will fall in. This is a picture of laying a trap for a wild animal. Uh, she's also described in, in Proverbs 23, 27 as a deep pit or narrow well, a uh, place of danger where you could fall in and, and lose your life. Proverbs twenty three twenty eight. she lies in wait as for a victim and increases the unfaithful among men. So she is pictured here as someone who is a, a, a predator seeking to destroy uh, others with her sexual activity. Men are described in similarly uncomplimentary factor, uh, uh, ways, Proverbs 6.32, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. And um, uh, literally this means that she is one, he is one who lacks heart. This phrase is used several times in Proverbs uh, as it is in Proverbs 10.13. It's translated by one translation in Proverbs 7.7, 7, a young man who lacks heart, is, is, it's translated brainless. That gets the point across. He is not thinking. He has no content uh, with which to think. And then the enticement, the way in which the adulterous woman baits the trap, uh, is described in uh, several passages. In Proverbs 7, uh, verses 14 and following, this is laid out. She says that she has peace offerings uh, with me. That it would indicate some value. She says, today I've paid my vows. I'm a good woman. I'm right with God. So she tries to uh, camouflage herself as someone who is is moral and upright. And she says in verse 15, so I came out to meet you, to diligently to seek your face. I have found you. So she appeals to his vanity. She's looking specifically for this one when, in fact, any male would do who could uh, pay her for her services. Uh, she then uh, shows how she has made everything in her life attractive to the purpose of of uh, setting the setting the trap uh, for the young man. She spread her uh, bed with tapestry so that it looks attractive. The co- coverings of Egyptian linen, which was quite expensive, the perfume on her bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. This also. Uh, something uh, or spices of value. So she says, come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let's just be completely irresponsible and not pay attention to uh, what is right or what is wrong. Let's just live for the moment and uh, give in to all of our sexual desires. And uh, she says her husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him, so I know he'll be gone a long time, so we don't have to worry about him. There's no accountability. Let's just do uh, whatever we want to do. And in verse 21, uh, the father says, With her enticing speech, she causes him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. The point and the correction of this is to not even listen. For the male, it is to leave, to just completely avoid any and every circumstance 
where where temptation could possibly uh, be offered. Uh, this involves uh, any, any, in every area from, from pornography to actually just putting yourselves in an area or in a position where you could be tempted or you could be uh, seduced by a woman. Um, the prohibitions are laid out in uh, just some other examples of the temptation, Proverbs 5.3, for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. Her mouth is smoother than oil. And so the young man is warned in Proverbs 6.25, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. Don't get sucked into her physical attractiveness. Uh, men are attracted uh, sexually by what they see more than uh, conversation or developing relationship. And so men need to be very careful about what they put in front of their eyes. And then in Proverbs 9.17, we see part of uh, one aspect of the temptation is forbidden fruit. Somehow that which we're not supposed to have seems to have a greater allure, a greater attractiveness. And so a proverb is quoted by the adulterous woman in Proverbs 9.17, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. The problem is that uh, it always results in eventual catastrophe. The scripture is very clear in terms of prohibiting uh, adultery, prohibiting any sexual activity outside of marriage. In Proverbs 5, 6, uh, lest you ponder her path of life. This is the next development in our chapter. Uh, the, the father has warned uh, the son in the first, uh, in the first five, uh, five verses, and now he introduces through this phrase, phraseology, lest... Um, uh, he is saying in, in 5, 6, after warning against the adulterous woman, uh, you need to stay away from her, and, for if you don't, this is what will happen. You will ponder her path of life. But her ways are unstable. You do not know them. There is so much uh, camouflage that's going on here, so much uh, that she is not telling you. All she really wants is your money and to take your life. She is not at all concerned with you uh, in terms of any kind of relationship, in terms of being actually attracted to you. Uh, so there's much that you don't know. You're just walking into a trap. Uh, he says, there, the, the father says there in, in verse 7, Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Now here he moves from my son to my children because he has more than one son, and so he is viewing these sons uh, as as they come along and each one uh, grows to maturity. Hear me now, don't, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her. Don't even ever even think about putting yourself in a position where something could happen. You know, I can't tell you how many times I have known of of leaders, whether they are political leaders, where they're business leaders, or whether they are pastors, who have succumbed, as and many of these more uh, well-known situations are, we're all aware of, have succumbed to some kind of sexually immoral temptation. And it is important as businessmen, as pastors, to never put yourself in that kind of a position. I've had a policy uh, ever since I was a pastor. I never meet 
alone with a woman in counseling. In fact, I always try to have another woman present. I remember a pastor uh, I uh, had years and years ago uh, who who told me, says, always have a woman, another woman, a wise woman in the room with you when you're counseling a woman because women will tell you things as a man. They they won't even be aware of it, and they can... They can uh, uh, they can disguise and cloak whatever is going on, but if there's another woman in the room, it, as soon as another woman walks in the room, the whole story changes. The whole narrative shifts. It, it's just amazing. And guys are just blind to this. They they don't even see it coming. And so, men, you just need to make sure you never put yourself in in any kind of situation that could conceivably lead to something uh, to compromise you. Proverbs 7, 5, the father says that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Do not give your strength. And then Proverbs 31, 3 reinforces this by saying, do not give your strength uh, to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. And then this whole idea is reinforced in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. Don't just kind of walk across the other side of the street. Don't just think that somehow you'll you'll be the exception to the case. It's to flee from it, to run from it, to avoid it uh, with every uh, ounce of your energy. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There is something distinctive about the unintended consequences uh, to our souls and to ourselves when we get involved in sexual immorality. These consequences are spelled out in three ways in these passages. There are social consequences, there are economic consequences, and there are personal uh, spiritual uh, consequences. There are numerous passages in the Proverbs that, that lay this out and spell it out. In Proverbs 5, the passage we're looking at, uh, the, the father says, but in the end, after you've had your moment of pleasure, in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Immediately, things go from great to horrible, and you never know what the long-term consequences might be. Her, they always lead to death, to that not physical death, not spiritual death, but to an emptiness of life the lack of joy, the lack of fulfillment, the lack of, uh, of, of any kind of significance in life. That's the promise that's held out in the sexual temptation. But to yield to it always leads to guilt, remorse, uh, and numerous other factors, family breakdown, marriage breakdown, uh, economic collapse, and these are spelled out in the Proverbs. In Proverbs 5, 5 and, 5 and verse 5 and 5, 9, we read, Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. You are spending your resources, your, your, the, the, the value of your life goes to someone else. Uh, Proverbs 5, 10, he says, Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a stranger. And so what happens is this loss of wealth is transferred to the adulterous woman. In verse 11, uh, the father says, And you'll mourn at last. There'll be regret and remorse and guilt when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you will then say in your remorse, How I have hated instruction 
and my uh, how I hated instruction and my heart despised uh, correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. Verse 14, I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of assembly and the congregation. This is the expression of guilt and remorse by the person who has yielded to temptation. For once that occurs, it's easier the next time, easier the next time, easier the next time, until it leads to a pattern which leads to the destruction of life. Other passages that emphasize the uh, regret and remorse are Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He's brainless. He who does, does so destroys his own soul. Proverbs 6.33, wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. And Proverbs 6.26 says, For by means of a harlot a man is reduced to a crust of bread. He's wiped out financially. And an adulteress, and literally the word there is another man's wife, will prey upon his precious life. And then Proverbs 29.3, Whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. So again and again, the consequences that we see in just economically, personally, and it leads to business collapse, it leads to uh, national collapse. In Proverbs 6, uh, 27, we read, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? And can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So as he who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. There's the idea that somehow we can get away with it. Somehow we really won't face those consequences. Who's going to know? But you see, God who is omniscience knows, and God is the one who brings about the consequences of our sin. National consequences are mentioned in Jeremiah, mentioned by the prophets, that this is one of the characteristics of the nation leading up to the destruction of the nation in 586 B.C. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 5, 7, and 8, God is speaking and says, How can I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery. They failed the, the prosperity test. They, they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops into the harlots' houses. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Uh, Jeremiah 7, 9 goes on to say, now, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to all these abominations." And then in Jeremiah 23.10, God says, For the land is full of adulterers, for because of a curse the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil, and their might is not right. Notice even the impact of sexual immorality in the nature destroys natural resources. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. The corrective is to remain faithful to your wife, to focus upon her and to build that level of intimacy and love within the marriage so that there's no reason to look elsewhere. Uh, you maintain that intimacy within marriage and focus on building and developing that relationship. And so through various metaphors, the writer says in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern. Don't go stealing from someone else. Uh, drink one, running water from your own well. 
Verse 16, should your fountains be dispersed abroad or streams of water in the streets? Or are you just going to uh, run around and spend your resources uh, on everything around you, on every uh, woman around you, every loose woman around you, and therefore destroy uh, your own resources and your own wealth? And verse 18, he says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Uh, as we grow older, it's proverbial that as men grow older, they start uh, casting about for some younger woman, and that happens too often in our culture. But when that happens, it, it's just a, it's a false hope. It's a false promise. There, there is such value in men and women growing close together, growing older together, and facing the challenges of life and building that richness of their life together so that as we come towards the end of our life and we face all of the challenges that come as we grow older, that we have a partner that we have built that foundation with to face the challenges towards the end of life. The concluding warning is given in verses 5, 21 to 23. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. We can't get away with stuff. God is watching God is the eternal judge, and there will be uh, consequences. Proverbs 5.22, his own iniquity is entrapped, the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his own sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. We think somehow that we can get away with sin, but sin has consequences, and God also intensifies those in divine judgment. In the New Testament, we're reminded in passages such as Galatians 5.19 uh, through 21, which lists a whole series of uh, the works of the sin nature, including adultery, fornication, uh, lewdness, uh, sexual sin, that those who practice such things at the end of verse 21, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as we've studied, that does not mean they won't be saved. It means that there will be no rewards, no inheritance, no positions of, of responsibility in the coming kingdom because of failure to grow to spiritual maturity in this life. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says the same thing. After listing, giving a similar list of sins, including fornication and adultery, that those who uh, practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But we are reminded that even if we have fallen prey to adultery, fallen prey to fornication, fallen prey to sexual immorality, or any of these other areas of carnality, that God's grace is greater than any, any sin that we commit, that there's always forgiveness, there's always recovery, just as David did after his sin with Bathsheba. He had to go through a series of divine disciplines, but God gave him the grace in order to survive and surmount those disciplines, and David went on to greater heights of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. So no matter what our failures may be, we always have the grace of God that, that can sustain us and that can strengthen us and that gives us forgiveness. For that's the mes message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, that we might have forgiveness of sins, move past whatever sin's been committed in our life, and we can press on to spiritual maturity and recover from any failure and glorify God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning and to reflect upon just the dangers that can beset us, especially in regard to sexual immorality. 
And, Father, we pray that you would give us uh, wisdom and courage to make the kinds of decisions we need to in our own lives to avoid being in, in the place where such traps can be set, to avoid being put in a position where we can fall prey to the enticements of sexual immorality, adultery, and fornication. Father, we're thankful for your grace that no matter what sins we may commit, we know that your, your love for us has provided a perfect solution in Jesus Christ. Father, it's our prayer that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that, that you would make your, your gospel clear to them, that they might understand that no matter what they've done, that sin is not the issue. The issue is what do we think about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we're told, paid the penalty for every sin on Golgotha. And therefore, the issue is not what sin have we committed. The issue is, what do we think about Christ? Have we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior? And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their uh, eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ as their eternal Savior. Father, we pray that you challenge each of us in every, every area of our life that we might not succumb to the temptations of sin, but we might set our course, our focus, set our face toward you, that even though we stumble, we will not fall, and we will always pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.